And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He is uh, one of the men of the hour in Washington for reasons that neither he nor any of us could have anticipated. Uh, Senator Mark Warner, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, now embarked on a very consequential uh, investigation of Russian meddling in the election and all of its implications, but also a guy with an enormously interesting journey in business and politics. I sat down with him this week after the State of the Union, got his impressions of that, the Russia probe, and the challenges uh, facing our economy in these times of rapid change. Senator Warner, it's good to see you the day after the State of the Union. We both had a, both had a late night last night. Uh, normally, I would begin these conversations from the beginning, which is your beginning. And I want to get to your journey, but it get, seeing as how it is so timely, I, I should get your comments on a few things first, because people will be impatient uh, to hear them. And one is your reaction to the State of the Union. It was kind of a kind of an odd spectacle, uh, given the how riven the chamber was, uh, and yet the theme of the White House was unity. Uh, did you did you feel unified? Almost anything but unified. We walked in. I walked in with a. Republican friend, and where in past years we might then go... Let's note that you have Republican friends. Absolutely. Yes. Sit sit together. Everyone immediately split to their team sides, and the president came out with a what appeared to be that smug look on his face that seems to be his typical look, and proceeded for the first 80% of the speech to only look at the Republican side. And occasionally- well, well, let, me, let me be devil's advocate for a second um, and ask you this. Um, there, there is such hostility. Uh, I, I think it runs both ways at this point. And one of the complaints was uh, one of your colleagues, Joe Manchin, said he thought Democrats treated Trump uh, uh, unfairly. In the chamber, Democrats weren't. I mean, I wasn't in the chamber. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, warmth from that side. Usually, there's some things that draw both sides to their feet. A lot. Of, uh, there were several, uh, twelve or fourteen members of the House who didn't even show. So, did he not look over there because he knew that he was going to be looking at an unfriendly group? Well, I think he, when he would turn, it was. He mentioned infrastructure. <laughs> he mentioned yeah. education and training. and But it was almost in this, you know, he would look over and wave his hands like, all right, y'all, I'm giving you some, here are some crumbs off of, off of the table. Uh, I found this speech disappointing on virtually every level. You know, uh, I want to. I obviously want to ask you uh, about Russia, but uh, before we leave some of the other elements of it on immigration, um, you heard what he said last night. Did that bring you closer or further away from uh, some resolution? And how is this movie going to end with this March fifth, uh, uh, I guess, deadline coming up for the DACA? Uh, recipients, or not recipients, but the the DACA immigrants. I think there is a high probability that we can reach a deal on the Dreamers if it is narrowly focused on the Dreamers. If for the Dreamers and the Dreamers, the universe is not only the 800,000 Dreamers who are participating in the program, uh, but even our Republican colleagues would agree that young people who were brought here and could have applied for Dreamer status but didn't, or 
should be included as well. So that, that number grows to more like 1.8 million. And which mean, is the number the president uses? Which is the, the number the president uses. I, I grant him the 1.8 million. There's some that would argue, even some Republicans that would argue the number is closer to 2.5 million. Um, I think we do have agreement on the size of the universe. I think there is agreement, and even the president has mentioned this as well, that there would be a path towards citizenship that would be somewhere in the 10 to 12-year framework. And for that dealing with the dreamers and path to citizenship, the Democrats need to be supportive uh, of dramatically increased border security. And again, I think on that component, um, and and the president is asking... But let me ask you a question, because um, it's always an issue of what can get through the house and uh citizenship is a big red flag do you think that a deal a narrowly constru- a constructed deal that in- could include citizenship can actually i think if passed? the president supports a deal it can get through the house now the house may have to be mr ryan may have to be willing to go ahead and allow actually the will of the house to vote in other words the, allow even the, if Democrats many republicans oppose yes. and, and that that deal would be combined with substantial border security and the numbers that have been bandied around are an authorization of $25 billion um, how much of that would be appropriated on an annual basis to be determined. It gets a lot more complicated when you move beyond that uh, I think those of us who support the Dreamers want to make sure that there's some protection for their parents it may not include citizenship but some ability for the parents of the Dreamers to stay. There's great deal of interest from the Republicans on changing the diversity lottery, which, again, I think is subject to change in a larger immigration deal. And then there is uh, what we would call the family reunification program. Uh, the, the Republicans would call chain migration. Mm-hmm. And again, I think there is there are examples of other countries, Canada, Australia, the UK, which have moved towards a more merit-based immigration program that I think are possibilities, but we also have long backlogs of people who have been waiting under the family reunification program. So I think there's ways to get to a deal point there. I would argue the smaller and more focused, the easier it is to get this done, at least prepared to go onto the floor of the Senate on February 8th. So back to the my, my question, do you think that his rhetoric last night helped or hurt I think his rhetoric could have been more helpful um, in terms of acknowledging the valuable contribution that the Dreamers play in our in our country. I mean, of the 800,000 that are normally talked about, fully 97% of them are either in school, working, or serving in the military. That's a pretty darn good percentage of folks who are contributing to our country. Instead, he used rhetoric that was... Um, that was more inflammatory, but I don't think he set the cause of immigration back last night. Um, the, you know, you said he turned to you guys and tried to uh, uh, essentially um, cue you to respond to him. You know, your colleague, uh, Senator Graham, said an interesting thing a few weeks ago, which is, uh, that, uh, you know, the key to understanding Trump is that if you're nice to him, he'll be nice to you, and if you're not nice to him, he will lash out at you. And essentially that he has a kind of childlike need for flattery. Uh, and um, it struck me, that's kind of a dangerous quality in a, in a president. And I, I'm kind of leading into this Russia discussion here, but uh, what, what is your assessment of him your observation of him as a as a person as what what makes him tick i've not had any personal interaction with him um i've chosen since this leading role i've been playing in the investigation i think it's i'm trying to stay one step removed is that why senator burr wasn't there by the way your colleague on the no i think senator burr had had other issues he was dealing with at Mm -hmm. home and uh, Senator Burr's not going to run again, and um, I think he's he, he had some priorities at home mm-hmm. to take care of. Um, but 
you're right, David, that if you if you start with someone who needs to be liked or needs to be loved as the operating premise, yet you have someone who's so prone to lashing out and using, in certain cases, despicable and oftentimes language that is uh, demeaning to others, uh, it's hard to generate uh, that kind of positive feelings. I think many of us have been more than a bit surprised sometimes at Lindsay's ability to uh, buddy up with um, Mr. Trump, particularly in light of a number of the comments. He's pretty honest about it. He said, I want to be able to talk to him. As you said, he's he's had that st- that skill even after um, uh, some of the comments that have been made. I think you'll even see Chuck Schumer has got a working relationship uh, with the president when obviously Schumer is one of the uh, the foils that Mr. Trump uses. But I think we all believe, you know, didn't always agree with Mr. Obama, didn't always agree with Mr. Bush, but they brought to the office of the presidency a level of seriousness, a level of thoughtfulness, a level of responsibility, a whether you agreed with them or not, you knew they were serious people treating the job seriously. I don't think everyone views Mr. Trump in that same light. You, you, you've been pretty supportive. I mean, among Democrats, I think you're in like the top five of people who voted uh, with him. But well, maybe, maybe perhaps because of your role on the Intelligence Committee, that hasn't exactly bought you a lot of warmth from him. Well, I've, I, I believe strongly that Elections have consequences, and particularly when it comes to appointees, that the president ought to get his or her team, that it takes someone to be an outlier for me to vote against them. You know, I, I felt very strongly that President Obama should have had more of his team, and when Republicans just reflexively voted against his nominees, I criticized him. I felt I was criticizing them for their behavior. I needed to grant mm-hmm. this president um, that same deference, having been a governor and used to being able to pick my own team. Now, that doesn't mean that I haven't voted against uh, you know, the health secretary and the education secretary and the right. energy secretary. There's a host of his major figures that um, – I voted against because I felt like they were so far out of the mainstream. But if I'm looking at a deputy secretary of a certain agency Mm -hmm. that's had a history of serving, say, President Bush earlier and has been a mainstream Republican, I'm not going to vote against them just because they're this president's appointee. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is this Russia uh, investigation that you're involved in. Uh, First of all, the, the, the issue of the moment is this memo that has been generated by the Republicans in the House that appears to be aimed at the FBI uh, and, uh, according to Democrats on that committee, selectively uh, edited uh, so as to create the worst possible uh, impression. Uh, Have you read that memo? I have not read that memo. I have not had a chance to obtain that memo. My Republican chairman, Richard Burr, has not had a chance to obtain that memo. How can that be? How can the chairman, the Republican chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, not be privy to a memo of this import? Uh, David, we're talking about both uncharted territory and to say unorthodox means would be an understatement. The genesis of this was Mr. Nunes, who was the Intelligence Committee chair who had been so conflicted because of his earlier antics traveling to the White House in the dark of night to Mm -hmm. pick up documents that he then brought back to the House and tried to make turn them into a a great expose. When he got exposed on that, had to recuse himself from um, his role in this uh, in this investigation. That recusal, somewhere along the line, he he. 
Well, he was the the the, the, the ethics committee over there cleared but, him of. But the ethics committee charge was separate from his reason from being recused. Mm-hmm. So that small detail, but a detail that's important. He did not ch- cite the ethics complaint as a reason for recusal. Um, but someone who was supposed to have stepped away from the investigation at some point last fall uh, created a secret cabal of members, not all of the members of the Intelligence Committee. I believe there may have been some members that were not even on the committee started writing a document that was their side or their interpretation of, I believe, and this is speculation because I've not read it, um, I believe their thought of the genesis of the famous Christopher Steele memo. The notion that you would write this in secret and not share it with your minority colleagues, Democratic colleagues, that in itself is totally unprecedented. You, you usually always start on a project together, and then if you break apart, so be it. And you might write different reports, majority report, minority report. The Senate had that experience with the so-called torture report that was a six-year project, but it was well known that the project was ongoing and, mm-hmm. and there had been a fairly public blow-up between the, the parties. This was a case where this memo was being written in secret and only came to light because of, I think, some good reporting um, late last year. Uh, now this memo, which is a four-page memo it has been described, building upon a s- set of classified documents, and I think your speculation is right because I have read the underlying classified documents, basically taking a select phrase here and there, cobbling something together that that is not an accurate portrayal of the underlying information and trying to put this out. And what is particularly stunning, and this is, this is very important, is that Mr. Trump's Department of Justice and the FBI are aghast. They have made huge appeals to say this would potentially violate um, uh, sources and means of our investigation. And one of the things you learn on the Intelligence Committee, if when you, cla- uh, when you give out classified information, America could lose sources and means of how we collect that information. In certain cases, if you give out the wrong information, people can and will die uh, based upon our human contacts. And some group that's created this document for purely political purposes to then be willing to use this unprecedented effort of trying to have the House declassify it without appropriate review. Uh, We're going into uncharted territory, and this builds on a campaign that has been geared at two things. One, a drumbeat from some parts of the media, some allies in the White House, an awful lot of allies on on the House side that starts with trying to undermine the very validity of the Mueller investigation. And when it has appeared that they may not get enough traction to fire Mueller, what they now have directed their fire at is really undermining the integrity of the FBI and the Department of Justice. We are in an area, again, where I can't think of any administration in in my lifetime that has gone out and actively under undermine law enforcement the way uh, uh, this Trump crowd is. Did Burr ask to see the memo, to he your is, knowledge? He has requested to see the memo. We have requested to see And the what memo. has he been told? We have both been told we do not, they will not grant us access. And why, do they say? Uh, I don't believe. Or do, you have, do you have a sense of why? I, I believe we just got to know we're not going to share it. Mm-hmm. But what do you think the motivation was? Are they concerned that you might impeach the memo? Well, I, I think that what we have tried to do in the Senate investigation, and it, we've had our bumps, mm-hmm. uh, but we've tried to keep our eye on the ball, which is let's well, let's get all the facts. Let's follow the facts wherever they lead. And that's meant Burr from the Republican side has had pressure, I'm sure, to try to shut this down and not let it continue. I've had pressure on the Democratic side that says, come on, Warner, this guy's guilty, you know, Mm -hmm. show us all the goods. We're trying to do this in an orderly fashion. And I think we would, we would, and I think most any legitimate entity would question both 
the methodology behind the memo, the willingness to use classified information uh, this recklessly, and I think we would probably, uh, and, and I imagine the memo will come out. Um, the president told like, some last night 100% it would come Feel out. like we need to contradict or at least need to point out its flaws. Now, the irony as well was they voted to release the the Republican memo. The Democrats, in response, put together a counter memo. Um, the committee voted again on party lines not to allow the Democrats to release their document, which, again, just doesn't pass the smell test. I know uh, the Democrats believe that it'll probably at some point shame the Republicans into allowing them to release their memo on the House side as well. It may be a week later, but uh, this is is not the way we ought to be dealing with national security concerns. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Senator Mark Warner. What so you you said you described the the goal? Uh, where where does it lead? Uh, Mueller will either find culpability or not. Uh, the president, it seems likely, is going to be asked to appear before him. Is the goal to uh, just thoroughly impeach the investigation so as to give him the latitude not to testify or to? make any conclusion that he draws uh, appear political. That appears to be the goal of some of Mr. Trump's allies, is to impugn the integrity of Mueller. Nunes included? Uh, it appears that some of these individuals uh, are working towards that goal, and you do have um, an effort that's now broadened to impugn the integrity of the FBI and the Department of Justice. David, though, I'd like to step back for a moment and say where I think at least our investigation, the kind of points we've put on the board. Mm -hmm. And the first three areas, uh, I think there is broad-based bipartisan consensus. Point number one, we have been able to reconfirm the overall consensus of the intelligence community of their January 6, 2017 report that the Russians massively interfered, directed at the highest level of the Russian government, in the American elections. They interfered by hacking into both political parties, but only releasing information against one candidate, against Mrs. Clinton. And they had information that would have been damaging on the other parties, and they did not choose to release it. They also um, interfered by using social media. They interfered by by tampering with or attempting to tamper with a number of our electoral systems. So Russian intervention helped not a Trump. Hoax. Uh, not a hoax. And frankly, these were the same techniques that Russia has used prior to our elections in places like Estonia, where they used after our elections in places like the Netherlands, France, and increasingly evident in the Brexit vote. So interference, number one. Number two, um, the Russians during 2016 didn't change vote totals, but they rattled the door in a sense, if you analogize to a burglar, of 21 states' electoral systems. And what was almost Kafka-esque, it would be the only word I could use, for the first eight months of our investigation, the Department of Homeland Security would not tell the chief election officers in those 21 states that they had been attempted to be hacked into, using the excuse that the Secretary of State, for example, would not have appropriate security clearance. That was crazy. Uh, But we, and I give Berg in credit here as well, we stayed on Department of Homeland Security. They have told the 21 states, um, after some bumps, we have a much better public-private partnership between the states and the federal government. There's also a working group, not NGO, out of Harvard working on this, where I think our states are upping our election security, and our committee hopes to have a full-fledged report out uh, before March, because uh, that's when the primary season starts in Mm -hmm. 2018, on how we up our game around election security. So I think we've made progress there. Pompeo, the CIA director, says he expects the Russians will try to to meddle in the in the 18 election. Well, the Russians, nothing that none of the tactics they were using stopped in 2016. We've seen Russians and Russian bots and others ping state systems, 
local government systems in this recent kerfuffle around release the memo, the hashtag release the memo that would be supporting releasing Mr. Nunez's memo, the biggest group on the internet pushing that were Russian bots. So they have not backed off at all. There's actually Russian activity going on in the Mexican election right now. They have a huge rate of return. This would cost them pennies yeah. on the dollar for this kind of interference. It's so, actually put them, cyber cyber tactics have put them back on the global map. Absolutely. And so let me just, we, we saw the interference. Mm-hmm. We saw the touching of the, the 21 states' electoral systems, and now states getting better. The third area, and I think uh, our, our committee can claim some responsibility for elevating this issue, and that is starting to expose the dark underbelly of social media. I've been a, my background was a, as a technology guy, yes. I, and you know I've been a big supporter of tech companies, and I think if you look at Google and Facebook and uh, Twitter, you know, Amazon, these are iconic great American companies. They've created a whole new way for all of us to communicate. But they also created a way for individuals to misrepresent misrepresent themselves and to use tools like bots and other things in an effort to influence discourse and dialogue. And when we first brought up the issue that the Russians were using um, Facebook, for example, I remember some of the CEOs, Mark Zuckerberg in particular, in fact, blew us off. And it took months and months and months before these social media companies started to come clean. I think we have moved the ball in this area. I think we've got more work to do. I'll point out one um, one last point here. Uh, Facebook really upped their game by the time the French elections came. And they bragged, Facebook as a company bragged about the fact that they took down over 30,000 sites that were Russian-backed, that were affecting the French elections. We're a year after the American elections, and the number of sites that they discovered that had ties back to Russia was still only 470. I believe there's more work to be done to fully expose the extent of the Russian use of social media. Are you satisfied with where the tech companies are now? I think they've made progress, but I I believe there was more activity than has been reported. But is the will there on their part? Because it cost them cost them money. It cost them business. It cost them some business. I mean, for example, when Facebook first revealed the ads, and the ads were the smallest component, they only revealed ads that originated out of Russia that were paid for with rubles. Mm-hmm. Now, you could have run the same accounts, and if they'd been paid for with dollars or euros, they wouldn't have appeared in their ana- their analysis. I think the social media companies believe that the United States government, that our intelligence community has a much greater idea of what foreign actors may be doing on social media. The truth is the United States government and our intelligence community was late to the game and is still late to the game in fully appreciating how information can be weaponized on social media and how agents of foreign governments are using social media to sow dissension because the real challenge here is not so much the ad placement we can track that down the real challenge is when you know Boris from St. Petersburg calls himself David from Chicago and you just blew my cover but go and ahead spews, and spews hatred um, and oftentimes the site initially may be around football or around hunting or around, you know, some something that has nothing to do with politics, but they lure you in, gain, gain followers, and then start to be used for their more nefarious means. Do you think uh, I, I, the president apparently hasn't had a, uh, a, a high-level national security meeting on this issue since he's been president? Is he, uh, is he retarding efforts to try and harden our defenses against this? The good news is that virtually every person that the president has appointed in the national security realm or the intelligence realm recognizes what a threat Russia is, what threat they posed, what they did in 2016, and what they continue to do. The fact that the president 
has not acknowledged this as a national threat means we have no whole-of-government approach to make sure it doesn't happen again, and that makes our country less safe. The fact that there's not a single person coordinating election security out of the White House, drawing on state resources, drawing on Department of Homeland Security resources, makes us less safe. The fact that we don't have a single person coordinating our outreach and working with the social media companies means that we're not fully protected. The fact that we've not acknowledged that 21st century warfare will be misinformation, disinformation, and cyber means that even moving beyond the Russian threat, there are a dozen-plus Chinese companies, tech companies that are all north of $10 billion in valuation. Americans may have heard of Alibaba and Huawei. Mm -hmm. There are dozens others, and we have no plan on how we're going to stop them from being pervasive in our own market Mm -hmm. since all of these companies, in effect, have backdoors to the Chinese government. This failure to acknowledge this threat means we are not being protected. Why, uh, Why hasn't the president, in your view, implemented the sanctions that you, as you mentioned earlier, you, the Congress almost unanimously passed uh, against Russia for this very reason? That, to me, is one of the questions that make this investigation so terribly important. Um, the president's unwillingness to acknowledge Russian intervention and take actions against it Um, I don't have a good explanation. It is one of the reasons why there are so many that speculate and why it appears Mr. Mueller's investigation continues to pick up speed uh, that uh, there were so many, such an unusually high number of contacts between senior Russian officials and individuals that were affiliated with the Trump campaign, whether it was with Outreach to General Flynn, who's been indicted. Outreach to George Papadopoulos, who's been in, who's pled guilty. Uh, mm-hmm. Outreach uh, to Mr. Trump Jr. Right. and Kushner and uh, Manafort, Manafort, who's already charged uh, with meetings. We have out, outreaches to um, a uh, a individual affiliated with the Trump campaign as a foreign policy advisor. Uh, Carter Page. All of these individuals, there appears to be just in the press plenty of of evidence that the Russians were reaching out with offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. Um, You've been involved in presidential campaigns. I've been involved in presidential campaigns. I've never seen this much outreach from a foreign government, in this case, a foreign government that's been an adversary most of our life uh, to any campaign in my in my life. The benign explanation that his supporters offer is that he resents the idea that the Russians somehow delivered victory to him that he believes he was the author of. Uh, but... Th- uh, the the less benign explanation is that the president is somehow compromised uh, by the Russians. Are you concerned about that? I am concerned. I'm not going to reach any final conclusion until we review all of the facts and I cut, talk to all of the witnesses. But for an individual who constantly says there's no there there, you have a remarkable pattern of anyone that's involved in this investigation doesn't have very good job security. We've seen the FBI director, Jim Comey, fired. We've seen this past week the acting FBI director uh, before Mr. Ray came in um, relieved of his position. We've seen the attorney general have to recuse himself and the president get angry at the attorney general. We've seen the whole FBI and the whole Department of Justice, their reputations be impugned. Um, This kind of obsession from the president against the investigation and against allowing Mueller to finish his job, to me, don't reflect the actions of a man who has nothing to hide. The uh, uh, Mueller has on his team people who are, are expert in financial crimes. Um, when I ask if the president is, is compromised, is that an area of concern of yours? Do you, do you think that that should be part of the probe and 
his financial dealings that may have linked him with Russians. Is that a legitimate area of exploration, and is it a big concern of yours? There has been a lot of speculation and rumor about um, the president and his organization's financial ties uh, to Russia. You've got his own son um, comments saying that most of the money they were receiving post-crisis was from Russia. Have you confirmed that? That that, um, activity falls more on the criminal side of the ledger. So it will be, if it's being investigated, it is the focus Mm -hmm. of of Mr. Mueller. Um, I've read the same things you've read in terms of Mueller hiring people with financial expertise. I was hoping you'd talk about the things I haven't read. So um, uh, I suppose, but Mr. Mueller's not sharing with us the particulars. Our investigation is into counterintelligence in the, in the sense of can Americans be potentially compromised by a foreign power and um, we are we're making continue to make some progress in in that area you, you, you artfully as a skilled politician would talked around my question a little bit but not my first rodeo David I uh, know I understand that I knew that coming in uh, but uh, but the, 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 the blunt question is, are you comfortable or that the president is, is, is not compromised? Mean, is this a concern of yours? I, I know he's behaved in, towards the investigation, but based on everything that you know. David, I'm not going to answer straight out that question until we finish our investigation. I feel I owe it to the president uh, to give reserve judgment until I see all the facts. I owe it as well to the president's critics to make sure that we see all the appropriate facts, and then I draw my conclusions. We've made a great deal of progress uh, in this effort. We've got more information to come. This has not been a simple process. There are so many different strains of communication or connection between Russians and individuals that were involved with the Trump organization or the Trump campaign, and they all have to be followed through. Um, End of the day, I want this report finished. I want it to be released to the American public. Uh, And And when do you anticipate that happening? Well, my hope would be uh, that we will finish a lot of our work. Um, My hope is... uh, uh, mid to late spring, but we're going to finish it when we're done. uh, Are you getting the cooperation that you need from witnesses? We have seen, I would imagine, more witnesses even than um, Mr. Mueller has seen. We started early on. We've been very thorough. We will need some of the principles. We've had many of the witnesses like Mr. Kushner and Mr. Trump Jr. and Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, come in and talk to our staff so that rather than a series of politicians trying to one-up each other in some of the witness categories where you can get a full line of questioning in. But I can't imagine any senator putting his or her name on a final report unless the senators themselves get a chance to question the principal characters involved in this investigation. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back with Senator Mark Warner. I promised earlier that uh, we would uh, do what we normally do, which is to talk a little bit about you. Um, And I want to do it in the context of of where we are today, but raised mostly in Connecticut. Well, I actually grew up more in the Midwest. In Indianapolis. I was born in Indianapolis, uh, lived there till about fourth grade, then moved to outside of Peoria, Illinois from... Um, from middle school era, by eighth grade, moved to Connecticut and stayed there through high school. And my folks, um, my mom's past, my dad and sister still live up in Connecticut. So I kind of bounced around a little bit, uh, uh, Midwest, New England, and and then settled in Virginia after but college. But decided was pretty early that you were interested in politics. Why? You know, somehow I had the bug. My parents were not political. Um, they were... Active. They were active in you know, church organizations. My 
my dad was a I was a Boy Scout. My dad was a Boy Scout leader, uh, Indian guides. They were presidents of the PTA. Um, if they had political leanings, they were more on the Republican side. I can still remember as late as 1968, um, and I think I got in, was starting to get politically interested in 1968. That was I was in eighth grade, mm-hmm. so I always like to think Tumultuous I was year. yeah old enough to be touched by the idealism of the 60s, but not so old that I got jaded by the. 60s. Um, and as late as 1968, I think I still was uh, in eighth grade, um, portrayed myself as a, in our eighth grade debate, was the Nixon surrogate. So um, I think it was probably a year or two after that that I, I realized my leanings were more Democratic. Uh, and maybe because my dad was a Republican, it turned into good dinner table um, arguments over you know, Vietnam War, civil rights, or yeah. environmental. There's movements. a lot of that going around. A lot of that going on in those time periods. You, um, you got involved uh, in. Uh, you went down to uh, to Washington to go to school for that reason, uh, and you you were uh, in at a very low level in Senate offices. Senator Abe Ribicoff, someone I met when I was nine years old. I, I stood in his office and I thought, wow, it would be incredible to work in a place like this. You worked in there. Uh, there, um, And ultimately, you served at the DNC uh, as a fundraiser. Uh, and then you went off into business. And you, you made a lot of money uh, on this kind of obscure uh, element of the cell bu- cellular business, which is Spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think people recognize. Well, let me, yeah, it. let me just take. I mean, I, I um, went to school at George Washington University, and because I wanted to work on Capitol Hill, I got a job with Abe Rubikoff and would ride a, my bike up. At, I'm not much of a morning person, but I was a morning person then, and I'd have to be up in Senate offices at 7:30 in the morning to open the mail. Um, I banded that job with. Ribicoff into a job actually with Chris Dodd, who um, was at that point serving in the House, and he allowed me a little more responsibility, and I became a legislative assistant to him and um, would work about 25 or 30 hours a week and just take my classes at night and elsewhere, and I really kind of moved a lot of my life from kind of Foggy Bottom, where GW was, to Capitol Hill. Had a great time, took a couple of semesters off um, to do campaigns. Mm-hmm. Finished, was lucky enough to get into Harvard Law School. Uh, all of my classmates went off and right. went, uh, went to big law firms, and I went down and uh, managed to get a job at the Democratic National Committee making a grand total of $18,000 a year, which was about a third of the price that a lot of my classmates yeah, were getting. Yeah, that probably made you one of the losers. That was the, one of the, yeah, definitely, yeah. I felt like I was doing the right thing, but I was not getting rich. Um, left the left the DNC after doing fundraising for a year and a half and decided I'd go become an entrepreneur. Took my life savings, $5,000, invested in a little company, went to work for that company. And Helped lost that company it. that went totally yeah. broke in yeah. six weeks. I failed a second time in real estate. And then for around six months was... Um, uh, didn't have enough money to, you know, have an apartment and was kind of living out of my car and sleeping on my friend's couches. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who I'd met through politics, who subsequently went into um, went into politics, he'd been a professional basketball player. Yeah, Tom player. McMillan. Tom yeah. McMillan. Great player. I know you're a basketball guy. I'm too. a basketball yeah. guy and he's a great friend. And he told me about this new industry called cell phones. And I'd made uh, met people who were, had some wealth uh, during my fundraising time, and I went and talked to them, and a couple of them were willing enough to take a, take a chance on me. I did go back to my law school classmates who were practicing at these uh, white shoe firms and urge all of them to take a flyer with me on cell phones. Uh, they all turned me down. Um, Which shows you that even Harvard people aren't. Well, I, I like to say they're infallible. You know. The, the, they're still practicing law. So, uh, you know, but it was, I was a real, I was very fortunate. I mean, I kind of, you know, a little corny sounding, but epitome of an American dream. You know, public schools, had to go get through on student loans, failed a number of times in business before I got it, 
got another shot. But, you know, what the country offered me, and, you know, at its core, what is its secret sauce is it gives people from all different kinds of background that, you know, fair shot and fair opportunity. And I was uh, lucky enough to hit an industry right as it was starting and um, did well, uh, started a company um, beyond doing a series of deals, started a company uh, that became a company named Nextel, yeah. which was a fairly prominent wireless carrier. Um, built off of that and started a venture capital fund that um, had a still exists. I'm very proud of it, called Columbia Capital, one of the largest venture capital funds in the mid-Atlantic region. But we had a really great run, and um, it gave me a level of financial security that I could have uh, uh, never imagined. And allowed you to go into politics without that concern. But let me just, uh, the, where I was going was um, that one of your insights was that the government had this spectrum that they could assign uh, and and that spectrum was very valuable, though it was assigned by the government uh, for at at no cost to carriers. But you began to broker this spectrum. Uh, there is a question, I guess, about whether one should get rich off of something that was essentially the public airwaves. Um, but the the bigger question I want to ask you, you can answer that, but the bigger question I want to ask you is there's now this discussion, I guess, quashed very quickly about the next level uh, of spectrum uh, and whether the government should seize part of it for emergency communications and some of the needs uh, of the government. That's been widely re- you know, rebuffed by the industry. Do you think that's a legitimate well, let me try to let me try to answer all three of those questions. Yeah, the, do, the, do do it quickly because I have to speed date you right, through the, the, your whole life. The here. way the the government awarded cell phone licenses was the same way they awarded radio licenses, TV licenses, and they went through a competitive process. They even actually went to a lottery for a while. It made no sense. I shouldn't have probably been, you know, they should have been able to obtain public monies rather than having someone, in effect, broker these and be the middle person. They finally changed. I encouraged that change to move to where they auction off this public spectrum. On the case, there's two examples you raised in terms of subsequent spectrum. A few years back, there was an effort to pass a common radio spectrum for public safety. My concern was that if it was government-run, it would never be fully funded, and the equipment would always be more expensive than on the commercial side. That's proven to be the case. It's called FirstNet, and we're still not building out that fully interoperable system between first responders in a way that is commercially viable. There's new spectrum, kind of the next generation, where the Chinese are, frankly, leaping ahead of us, called 5G technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there needs to be a government role here in in kind of defining the universe. But if the government only were to build that network, I'm always afraid that the government network will never stay up with the so commercial side. you have the same side. concern you've had before. Same, same beside. Now, should there be a government role? Yes. Should the government have a right, kind of a right of first use, uh, for example, for emergency use mm-hmm. or others? Absolutely. Um, but uh, when we the last point I'll make here is if we look at just the public sector radios, the communications radios that first responders use, they still cost about $4,000 a piece. A cell phone costs about $100 a piece. And the cell phone oftentimes has much greater functionality than the $4,000 public service radio. This is one of the areas where you've got to let the market run its course. You uh, got involved in uh Back in politics in a serious way with Doug Wilder, who became the first uh, and only African-American governor of Virginia, one of the only African-American governors since Reconstruction in the in the country. Um, what did you learn from that experience about Virginia, about race, and about politics? Well, I learned that in an individual like Doug Wilder, who was his unique and individual as anybody I've met in politics. Um, uh, proud to call him a mentor. I call him a friend. I also know he's been someone who, um, anyone who works with Doug Wilder has ups and downs, and I've had my series of ups and downs with him. Doug felt that the, 
that his background and experience was more than sufficient. He was better qualified than any other candidate and went about uh, running back in 1989 uh, when a book had been written, you know, Hell Will Freeze Over first. And, you know, Hell Didn't Freeze Over. He got elected lieutenant governor. He got elected governor. Um, there were many rooms, many times in that campaign where I had to feel, you know, I was might be the only white guy in the room, which was the opposite of what I'd grown up with and, frankly, probably the opposite of what many African-Americans being in politics grown up with where they had been the maybe the only African-American individual in the room. Um, politics is always a bit below the surface. I, I learned, uh, particularly from uh, from Doug, and I tried to convey this when I had a few opportunities to get to know Barack Obama, that that oftentimes for the, the first, um, the 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 challenge oftentimes the African-American candidate has to be the first that emerges Mm -hmm. may come from critiques of, from other African-Americans more than even it comes, the critiques might come from the majority community. And I think both Doug Wilder and then subsequently, obviously President Obama, you had to have real toughness and resiliency to kind of fight through the skepticism uh, that was Is expressed. that because of the need to reach out to the broader community? Well, I think partially the need to reach out to the broader community and also sometimes the concerns that uh, oftentimes from more veteran figures in the, whether it's the African-American political movement or the civil rights movement, that it it may not be time yet. You know, I, I think it has always taken people like Doug Wilder or Barack Obama uh, to say, you know, if we wait for the perfect time before we, yeah. before people step forward and serve in major roles that reflect the way America looks today, uh, there'll always be a reason why now's not the right time. And sometimes it takes someone like, like a Doug Wilder or a Barack Obama just to say, no, enough already. Yeah. We're going to break through these barriers. I remember very clearly when Obama was running that it was only when he won the Iowa caucuses that the African-American community really rallied uh, to him because there was such skepticism as to whether America would be willing to accept an African-American candidate. Um, Additionally, uh, uh, Wilder campaigned all over the state of Virginia and and probably in places that uh, you wouldn't expect a Democrat to campaign. Um, That became your hallmark as a politician. You built when you ultimately you lost the race for the Senate, you ran for governor, you and you built a real base in parts of Virginia that Democrats uh, normally do not perform well in. Was that a consequence of what you saw or your natural inclinations? Well, it was partially, having seen how Doug Wilder had run, it was partially the fact that I'd grown up part of my life in a very rural town outside of Peoria, Illinois. Um, it was partially because I believed what I was offering was less about Democrat versus Republican and more the fact that even in the 90s, we realized the world was starting to move into a digital age, that technology was transforming our lives. I remember the debates back in the mid-90s when I was first running for Senate. You know, who's going to have more importance, Bill Gates or Bill Clinton? Uh, Was technology going to be a more dramatic changer than even political figures? I believe very strongly that that you know, whoever was going to be governor in a prosperous area like Northern Virginia, you know, Northern Virginia was going to be okay. The real value add I could bring is what happened to those communities in the southern part of my state or far southwest Virginia, which is Appalachia. Um, you know, how do you make sure those kids have the same opportunities as my kids would have living in Northern Virginia or living in Richmond? And I felt like both political parties, I still believe this, have not really offered have not really offered the benefits of an interconnected, fully technology driven world to rural and small town America. I think 
that's why the Democrats have not been successful. I think sometimes the Democrats have been, in effect, cultural elitists and looking down. At well, you sent some cultural cues. You 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 have a uh, a different position than most Democrats or have had on on guns. Uh, I know that you hooked up with uh, uh, Mudcat Saunders, a, a fabled Virginia uh, political strategist. You, you sponsored NASCAR uh, entries and so on. Um, let me ask you about the gun issue. Um, you've We've seen this. The president didn't really mention it last night. He mentioned his support of the Second Amendment. We just saw the greatest massacre in u.s history and it seems like there's this escalation of guns and especially with uh, automatic and semi-automatic weapons uh has has this caused you to rethink your position at all short answer is yes um i own firearms uh, i hunt occasionally you know i find that uh I believe I absolutely support the Second Amendment, but I also believe I, I remember you know, the tragedy we had at Virginia Tech after I was governor, mm-hmm. but particularly remember the tragedy uh, at Sandy Hook when my three daughters, um, they're now in their mid-20s, but then they were you know, in, in college, you know, said, Dad, you know, you got to step up on this. And... Um, I felt that you know, reasonable restrictions on gun ownership, background checks, not allowing individuals to fly on on airplanes that uh, shouldn't have access to firearms, reasonable places you can still be very much the bump pro Second Amendment. Issue. Yes, the bump stock issue. There sure. are there are a series of of areas, and I particularly remember the the families who um, who came in after Sandy Hook, and they could have come in showed the pictures of these beautiful children who they'd lost. And as a dad, I just couldn't imagine the losses they were going through. And they didn't ask. They didn't come in with a litany of, of asks. They came in and said, at least make sure you do those background checks. Do that one small step. But you didn't. I mean, not I you. Did. Oh, what, but well, you did. did. But, well, but let me ask you, is it even possible to move any of this through the Congress that you serve in? I think it's going to be very difficult to move it through the Congress that I serve in. We had a very good chance, and I give um, Joe Manchin, who had a much stronger record than I on guns, and Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, who I rarely agree with, but I give them both credit for stepping up and trying to forge a compromise uh, on this issue, and we ended up, I believe, with 56, 57 votes. And end of the day, was um, there were a number of Democrats who didn't vote for it. Uh, I do think there are reasonable restrictions that can be placed on the ownership of firearms, and particularly as we see these tragedies. And we seem to be kind of inured to them at this point. Um, it, they barely last Two yeah, news cycles. It's, it's disturbing. It is extraordinarily disturbing. You, uh, but, it, but I think let me just finish one last point here, and that that I believe neither both political parties right now are backwards looking, particularly when we come to rural communities. I think a forward looking vision that says you shouldn't have to leave your hometown to find a world class job. That f- using the tools of technology, that you ought to be able to equalize the quality of education. Anywhere in this country, I think we missed a huge opportunity when we did tax reform recently. I've, I supported, for example, bringing back mm-hmm. repatriating. repatriating earnings. But the price of repatriating earnings should have been the companies that were bringing those funds back had to reinvest some of those profits back in communities that have been left behind by trade. There was a chance for us to rework a whole series of of incentives and really make capitalism work for a broader group of people in America. We miss that opportunity. And I think whoever captures that ability to articulate an economic vision that's forward leaning will win the day. Yeah, I was uh, disappointed that that wasn't the nature of the debate in the last election. Um, So I want to ask you a couple of things about this. One is, 
technology generally. It feels like technology is churning at such a fast rate that we can't get our arms around all of its implications. You're dealing with one on the social media front. But in terms of the economy itself, and you're referring to it, things are changing so rapidly. And if you are well fortified for that, and if you live in a metropolitan area, you can capture the upside of that. If you're on the other side of that divide, you fall further and further behind. It seems to me that's one of the defining struggles of our time, and it's one of the things that animated the last election, this sense on the part of people who were both economically and culturally estranged from this changing economy. Well, there are two things, two fundamental forces sweeping through our economy, and I'm not sure either political party is offering a full answer. The first is that the very nature of work is dramatically changing. My dad worked for the same company for 38 years, never made a lot of money, but he had the security of a job, and there was health care, there was retirement. And then if he'd lost that job, there was a series of social insurance programs, unemployment, workman's comp, disability, that were out there. There was a social contract. That social contract is totally frayed now because no one's going to work for the same job for 35 years. Uh, millennials don't even think that way. They don't even ask. If you ask a millennial, you don't ask them where are you working. You ask them what they're working on. The average tenure of a job in America today is around three to five years. And what we have created is we're one of the only countries that has our social insurance system based upon the presumption that you're going to work full-time, long-term in a single employment. We need to move to a portable benefit system that allows you to collect benefits on every job. And I know you've been, you've been working on, on that on issue. That. I also think we need to acknowledge the McKinsey did a recent study showing that, yes, jobs are going to still be con- be created. We're not going to have them all eliminated by driverless cars. But a third of Americans, a third of Americans will have to change their jobs and change their skill set by 2030. Yet we have a tax system and an incentive system that says any rational company, it's much bu- better to buy a piece of equipment, mm-hmm. which is an asset, than it is to invest in a human being, which we book on an accounting basis as a cost. That is a screwed up 20th century mindset when we have to realize that the investments going forward need to be as we need to value investment in human capital every bit as much as we value investment in plant and equipment. And we could have done that in tax reform. We could have offered portable benefits in tax reform. We could have said, let's Let's realize that upskilling, once a person gets a job, you're still going to need additional skills. I don't know if these fit as Democrat, Republican, but this uh, talks to people where they're at. The issue of our time is not only income inequality, which is a huge issue. The issue of our time, which I think is even more prevalent than income inequality, is income insecurity. You, uh, in 2008... You set out in 2006, you were on a road to running for president. There were, for personal reasons, you you uh, withdrew. Um, would you con- contemplate running for president again? And can someone who has positioned himself as you have, uh, sort of in the, in, in the sort of middle of the debate, uh, not on one side or the other, can, can someone like that navigate through a Democratic primary process? I think the best opportunity I would have ever had was that time in that 06, 08 I remember you frame. being on the cover of the New York Times magazine saying, could this be our next photo, president? It wasn't picture. a flattering photo. It was I got have picture. To, yes. um, Is that when you decided to pull well, out? It was, it was that, and it was more of the question of having a, uh, before we took the final plunge, I had a promise my wife and three kids uh, that we'd have that family discussion, and the vote was four to one uh, mm-hmm. against. And yes. Particularly, my kids were at that point saying they'd just gone through four years of living in the governor's mansion. They weren't mm-hmm. sure they wanted to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was the best window. I don't think I think politicians who spend their whole life aspiring to look at whatever the next job is. Don't do a job of what their good job of what their current job is. Um, do I wake up every morning thinking, you know, this is what I want to do? No. Uh, do I think some of the ideas that I would like to articulate need to be part of the political debate? Absolutely. 
And so whether that role is... So this is this... Let me just cut you short and say, as an old rodeo rider, I, I, I recognize the evasion techniques. No, as a, be so I mean, safe. are you... Are you would, is it something you would contemplate? It's not on my game plan. I understand, point, but is it something you might contemplate? The, David, where I think I could actually do the most good is probably helping someone else that might be that next generation mm-hmm. pick up some of these ideas. Should it be a next generation person, you think? I think both political parties are way too engrossed in 20th century arguments. Our side, a lot based upon kind of old redistribution theory with a top-down government structure uh, that I don't think is all that attractive to millennials. The Republican Party or Trumpism, which is a glory days for white guys that may be looking back towards the 50s and 60s, that doesn't reflect an America that's as diverse and as forward-leaning as we are in this country. I think whoever captures that notion of dealing with economic insecurity that lays out a new social contract that frankly acknowledges that modern American capitalism isn't working for enough people and tries to make it work for enough people uh, will we'll win the My day. My God, that sounds like Mark Warner. I, you, you seem like you're describing yourself. It's, to me, it sounds like I'm describing somebody probably a heck of a lot younger than me that ought to pick up this uh, mantle and run with it. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.